You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Hello and welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that predicted the big plot twist by page nine. Yeah, basic. As another opener submitted by one of our lovely listeners and patrons, Sarah on Twitter at SeaCreature11. I'm Megan. I'm RJ by RJ. That doesn't mean anything, but okay. I'm wearing RJ Cologne by RJ. Wait, what does RJ Cologne smell like? Money. Yeah, all right, fair. So today, we're doing a book that RJ knows. We are? Yeah, well... I didn't know it. The whole reason is you the you had me watch the movie because you said you had to read it in school like twice. What movie? The Remains of the Day. Uh, I thought uh, we were talking about Face Off. No, not Face Off. We've made that joke several times now. Um, no, The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. I've never read this book prior, and uh, you had me watch the movie first, and then we were like, oh, let's do an episode. I have read Never Let Me Go, which is much more recent. This Remains of the Day is from 1989. We'll get there. But Never Let Me Go is from 2005, and it's about a bunch of horny teenage clones raised to be organ donors. And um, Remains of the Day is not that. The Remains of the Day is instead, perhaps, the most emotionally and spiritually unfulfilling road trip story ever written. I mean, Toy Thousand Leagues Under the Sea comes dangerously close to that, but at least Captain Nemo fights a bunch of giant squid. So, you know, that happens. How about Moby Dick? You know what? That is a pretty emotionally and spiritually unfulfilling road trip story. You got me there. They do all die in a whale fight at the very end, though, so that's something. How about Old Man in the Sea? I wouldn't call that a road trip. Road trip! <laughs> but the other sea voyages count as road trips? Well, because trips? they're voyages! Oh, he voyaged out to catch himself a big old marlin. Yeah, no, in, in this novel, the only thing our hero fights is all of his feelings. If you've ever been scared to act when you had something in your grasp, you're going to feel attacked by this book. <laughs> you're going to feel so attacked. And if you've ever been severely frustrated watching someone experience that, you're going to want to throttle someone. Potentially Kazuo Ishiguro. <laughs> So The Remains of the Day was published in 1989. It was the, the winner of the Man Booker Prize for Fiction that same year, and it was also made into a movie just four years later that was nominated for eight Academy Awards. And it's, it's well, we'll get there when we talk about the movie. It's considered to be one of the most highly regarded post-war British novels, which is largely why we're talking about it in the first place. And because it's time we did something that you've read. It's no atonement, but it'll do. <laughs> well, some, someday. Probably. God, I really don't want to do atonement. <laughs> so when did you read Remains of the Day, RJ? Either 11th or 12th grade. Man, really? Yeah, definitely high school. They had they, they had you reading the weirdest shit in high school. And then what, you just read it again in college? Watched the International Baccalaureate Program. I guess. That, no, I think that's the only time I've read it. Oh, so you just, you know, told lies. No, I didn't. Yeah, you said you, said you thought you had to read it twice. That's why you thought you still had the book on you. I did think so. Yeah, you would have held on to it since 12th grade. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, okay. Why did you like this book? Oh, let's get to the end here. Okay, fine. Did you have to tell me to do that at the end of the episode? I guess so. 
With that in mind, RJ, please tell us more about the admittedly alive man behind this most extremely English book. Sir Kazuo Ishiguro was born November 8th, 1954, which means he is a birthday twin with Megan. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. And a birth year twin with Roddy Roddy Piper. Uh, okay. The most interesting. He's here to, to kick ass, chew bubblegum, and, and write British novels. The, the, the most interesting person out of this trio, of course, being uh, Piper. Of course. But since this is not a podcast celebrating the best of humanity, we'll stick to discussing Sir Kaz. Oh boy, I didn't know he was my, I didn't know he was my birthday twin. The only one I know uh, literarily is, is old uh, Bram Stoker. Ah, the Toker. <laughs> and it, it, didn't we learn it's not Bram, it's Brom? No, we were calling him Brom, and then we're oh. like, wait, his name's fucking Abraham, and then we felt like idiots. Anyway, Kaz was born in Nagasaki, Japan. He was born to Shizuo and Shizuko Ishiguro. Dad was an oceanographer, and Mom was a homemaker. At the age of five, Kaz's family all moved to Surrey in merry old England when his dad took a job up with what is now known as the National Oceanography Center. Like most authors who are alive when we talk about them, not much information of Kaz's younger years has been disclosed to the public as of yet. Here is what we do know, though. He came up through school while living in Surrey. In 1973, upon graduating grammar school... Is it Surrey or Surrey? S-U- Oh, no, I know how it's spelled. I think it's Surrey. Surrey? Yeah, I don't know if it's Surrey. I think you're giving it like a little accent grave at the end there. <laughs> so Tom Cruise named his kid after this place. No, didn't Tom Cruise name it S-U-R-I? Well, yeah, but you're pronouncing it the same way. I'm happy I remember what Tom Cruise's kid's name. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm real glad that that's in both of our heads. The stuff the human brain retains is so fucking worthless. I mean, it's no apple. I'm really upset that I know that too. What is it? It's, it's Chris Martin and Gwyneth um, Paltrow. Yeah. Well, you know, Horrible Child Names is on brand for this podcast, if nothing else. <laughs> oh, gas and vort. Hashtag never forget. <laughs> in 1973, upon graduating grammar school, the equivalent of high school at 18, Kaz took a gap year and toured through the U.S. and Canada, because North America is the best America. Duh. See, there's the proof. He was born in <sighs> Japan, moved to England, and as soon as he turned 18, where does he come? The U.S. of A. God damn it. He kept a journal during his journeys to keep track of all the things he saw and all the thoughts he had while traveling. He found a lot of things within Western culture to poke and prod at in his later writings. Another thing Kaz was doing at the time was sending off demo tapes. From a young age, Kaz wanted to be a musician. He played clubs, rented studio time to put demos together. Jazz was the musical calling. Jazz. This part of his life never really took off, though. That's, well, I mean, that's not entirely true. Go on. He writes lyrics. Oh, like, he's yeah. written lyrics extensively for different, for other jazz musicians and artists. I listened to some of it. Okay. His own music never really took off. Okay. He said in an interview, quote, producers would listen to my demo tapes for 15 seconds and say, hideous. Ooh. Don't like it, mate. Get out. Aww. That's pretty mean. Kaz reflected after he had become an award-winning author, quote, There was another life that I might have led, but I'm having this one. So there you go. Even if your dreams of becoming a hot and hit musician blow up in a spectacular fashion, 
you too can potentially land on your feet if you happen to be one of the best authors of your generation. You too can win a Man Booker Prize for literature. Although that's it's, that quote is interesting because it is definitely relevant to the contents and overall theme of the novel. This is true. Obviously, it's something very close to his heart. Yeah. Regret. <laughs> regerts. Regert, regerts. And uh... if only I was better at the jazz. <laughs> he would have gotten plenty of sacks. <laughs> but as Megan did mention, he did write lyrics. He's found work as a lyricist, you know, when not writing award-winning novels. (laughs) So after taking the year off to tour North America, Kaz returned to England and took up university. In 1974, he began his studies at the University of Kent in Canterbury. He graduated with honors with a BA in English and philosophy four years later. He took a year to work on his own fiction before he enrolled back in school to get a master's degree in creative writing from the University of East Anglia. I don't know about all yous... But I've always been more of a West Anglia guy myself. Go Cougs. What? Is there really an East Anglia and West Anglia? Or are you well, fucking with me? There is. He went to East Anglia. Is there is no place known as West Anglia. I'll level with you. <laughs> Way to take advantage of my total lack of geographical collegiate institutions. <laughs> I made it up because I can. And I probably could have gotten away with it too. You could have. Upon graduating with his master's, he was 26, and shortly thereafter became a citizen of the United Kingdom. So, interesting note about his citizenship. When he became a U.S. citizen, not a U.S. citizen, (laughs) when he became a U.K. citizen in 1983, he renounced his Japanese citizenship. He did not visit Japan after leaving when he was five until 1989, when he was 45 years old. Wow. Despite this, his first two novels were set in Japan. He said in an interview about why he chose to still set stories in Japan and how he wrote about a country he did not really know all that well personally. He said, I quote, I grew up with a very strong image in my head of this other country, a very important other country to which I had a strong emotional tie. In England, I was all the time building up this picture in my head, an imaginary Japan. However, on the other hand, he does not exactly see himself like the prototypical Englishman. I quote, I'm not entirely like English people because I've been brought up by Japanese parents in a Japanese-speaking home. My parents felt responsible for keeping me in touch with Japanese values. I do have a distinct background. I think differently. My perspectives are slightly different. I think that's what makes a lot of his novels that focus on British Britishiness interesting is because he's coming at it as a as an outsider insider sort of thing. He also said of his upbringing that people are not two thirds one thing and the remainder something else. Temperament, personality, or outlook don't divide quite like that. The bits don't separate clearly. You end up a funny homogeneous mixture. This is something that will become more common in the latter part of the century. People with mixed cultural backgrounds and mixed racial backgrounds. That's the way the world is going. Specifically, he says about himself, If I wrote under a pseudonym and got somebody else to pose for my jacket photos, I'm sure nobody would think of saying, This guy reminds me of that Japanese writer. Mm. I do think it's interesting and maybe something we've not really encountered in a lot of the authors we've covered so far, as many of the authors we have covered generally stick to the cultures they were born into and brought up in by their parents. Which, of course, I guess makes sense when we primarily focus on authors who have come and gone from this physical, meaty realm of ours. Such a meaty realm it is. It's true. I mean, and that's why, you know, every now and again, we we gotta dip into the pool of authors who are still kicking because 
Yes. That's how you get, you know, more diverse entries into the literary canon. As we cover authors whose lives have spanned the turn of the 20th and 21st centuries, we will probably start to deal with more authors who grapple with their identities and their fiction. Maybe in their fiction, too. <laughs> Maybe. I, it's possible. I think this will be especially true of a lot of authors with Asian ancestry, as there was, and may still be, a big gap between Western and Eastern influences and foci. Yeah, there's a really good graphic novel I, I recommend that kind of goes into that. It's called American Born Chinese, and it's really dope. And I can't remember the author's name right now off the top of my head, but I know the title's American Born Chinese. I read it like years ago, and it, it focuses on that kind of subject matter. It's really fucking good. So in general, Kaz sets his novels during the first half of the 20th century, and he has a penchant for his novels ending without resolution, perhaps frustratingly so. Many times, the issues Kaz's characters confront are recognized and buried in the past and left to fester, and no real change is made outwardly. Just an inward recognition and resonation takes place. Some argue that this is a reflection of the Japanese idea known as mano no aware. Mon, mono no, mono no aware. <laughs> mono no aware. Mono no, I don't, mono no aware. I'm not sure. All the Japanese I know, I know. I learned from 15 years of martial arts and watching an anime like a nerd. So. All right, so we'll go with Megan's pronunciation. Mono no aware. No, that wasn't. What I really, you should be looking this up before we do this. Mono no aware. That's exactly how. That's it's how spelled. it's. That's how it's spelled. I am pretty sure that is not how it's pronounced. But now that you know how it's spelled, you can go look it up. And tell us how fucking dumb we are. I would assume a ware. Probably a ware. Anyway, this could roughly be translated to, quote, an empathy toward things, or a sensitivity to ephemera. Or, to put it another way, the transient gentle sadness at ephemeral things passing as well as a longer, deeper, gentler sadness about the state of being the reality of life. They pack a lot into those fucking three words, huh? Yeah. Damn, we don't have, do we have a good three-word phrase that, that conveys that? Ennui. Well, that, that's French. <laughs> uh, like, do, we, do we have anything in English that uh, encapsulates that one? YOLO. <laughs> you know what? Good. Does good. Yeah, you got me. You got, me. You got me. Hashtag YOLO. Hashtag YOLO. In 2017, Kaz won the Nobel Prize in Literature. When he got on stage, he started to have a jazz recital he never got to have. In his mind, probably. Maybe. Look, it would be on brand, given what we just learned about him, to write an autobiography saying that is what was going on in his head when he was giving his acceptance speech. Mental jazz recital. Yeah, it was happening. <laughs> yeah. Inward. On the inside. Yeah. Always keep your jazz buried super down deep inside you. Never, never let it show outwardly. Never let anyone see your jazz. <laughs> or your jazz fingers. Yes, your, your jazz hands, I think. On February 9th, 2019, he was knighted and became Sir Kaz. Oh, so this is a very recent development. Yeah, so all you subs better recognize the superior when he is around and give him his due respect. Quiet fives at 10 is speaking. Some odds and ends on Kaz. He's been married to Lorna McDougal since 1986 when he was 32. She is a social worker, and the two of them actually met at a charity to help eradicate homelessness. The two of them have a daughter named Naomi, and Kaz considers himself a serious cinephile and is a big fan of Bob Dylan. <laughs> I love him 
we do people who are alive and you just gotta be like scraping around. Ah, he likes Bob Dylan! <laughs> um, as Megan mentioned earlier, if you don't know Remains of the Day, what you might know is Never Let Me Go, which was a book turned into a movie. Um, specifically, the movie stars Kira Knightley, Carrie Mulligan, and Andrew Garfield. They take the train to Bone Town. Yeah, let me say, <laughs> Andrew Garfield could have done way worse in his love triangle than those two. Yep. Hot take alert. Kara Knightley and Carrie Mulligan. Those are some spicy meatballs. Gross. What the hell? Not spicy meatballs? Boring meatballs? Like, don't call a person a spicy meatball. That's really weird. You could just what? Say, you could just say that they're gorgeous. And it's like, well, yeah, obviously. T- tweet at Kira. Ask her what she would prefer. Yeah. Yeah. At Kira Knightley. Um, at Kira Knightley. How, do, how do you feel about being called a spicy meatball? <laughs> She, she probably would be like, uh, oh, not Annie. awesome. What? I said, oh, Annie. What the fuck are you talking about? She was in Star Wars. She was in Star Wars for 10 seconds, <laughs> yeah. and I don't think she has any speaking lines. <laughs> she was thinking it. don't know how well known it is, but uh, she's in episode one, The Phantom Menace, as one of the, the handmaidens who pretends to be Queen, Queen What's-Her-Face. Queen, Amidala. No, yeah, that. Padme. While Natalie Portman pretends to, to not be the queen. So... This is a discussion I've actually wanted to have for a long time. Wait, what the fuck? Do you think they made the right casting decision in casting Natalie Portman over Keira Knightley? You mean casting someone who is not British and forcing them to do a British accent while having a British actress (laughs) be completely quiet as her double? Yes. (laughs) You know, I don't know. Anyway, when it comes to Remains of the Day, it's got some facts on it. I actually found an article written by Kaz about the process. So he actually wrote Remains of the Day in four weeks. Fuck. That he had been struggling writing, that he wrote his first couple novels, got those out, got some money, you know, was living okay, but then he wrote the first chapter for Remains of the Day and was like just stuck. Like for over a year. It just wasn't happening. And so he got together with his wife and his wife agreed like his work output isn't what it needs to be. And so they planned out that for four weeks he would wake up at 7 a.m., write until 10 p.m., He would take a break for lunch, a break for dinner, and that would be his day. That his world would become his book. And that he wouldn't recognize anything outside of that. And that she would do all the household chores. And so for four weeks, that's what he did. The wife told him after about a week he was acting kind of weird. That it didn't seem he was really like with it anymore. And he was saying, no, 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 it's going great, it's going great. And that he wanted to see it through, and he saw it through, and he emerged with basically the novel that we know. He still had to edit it and stuff like that, but in those four weeks, he had put notes like all around the room and basically sat down and pumped out the creative world that we now know. Fuck, all right. Maybe I should be trying the, the Ishiguro method and he, just become slightly insane for a month. He does, uh, he did take Sundays off. Uh, well, you know, you yeah. get, that's the Lord's Day. Oh, so he called this four-week process the crash. The crash. Yep. All right. Well, struggling writers, writers like me who will sit and stare at a fucking page for weeks on end. And so if you are Let's artistically <laughs> constipated, try Kaz's The Crash. The Crash. I might. I might, I might try The Crash. Um, I might become impossible to live with while I'm doing The Crash, though. So. Well, it's not that different than every day. I was setting myself up for that. I knew at the moment I said it, but I did it anyway. Did it for the jokes. Um, he also says he was inspired to write Remains of the Day by Tom Waits' Ruby's Arms. 
It's a song. I Yes, I'm aware. I'm a fan of Tom Waits. So is Kaz. He enjoys <laughs> that voice. Oh, yeah. Those yeah. those pipes. Oh, yeah. He actually refers to them. And here he is playing a guitar. It's, oh, he looks like a nerd. <laughs> I think he is a nerd. I think he might be a nerd. Anyone He's... who refers to themselves as a serious cinephile? Is probably a nerd. But yeah, he's holding he's holding the guitar like in in a way that someone trying really hard to look cool holding a guitar like nah, it's just me and my acoustic guitar. We're like this all the time. Uh, that he likes that Tom Waits sounds like a rough American hobo. Yeah, that is a perfectly cromulent description of Tom Waits. He also <laughs> believes he was influenced by the uh, Francis Ford Coppola movie starring Gene Hackman, The Conversation. I never heard of that. Someone where Gene Hackman and the art that we see is like recording a conversation like is oh where he's just like oh it's like one of those 99 percent movies on there yeah we get there slowly in our own time bit by bit bit by bit if if you've seen the movie we haven't he believes the hackman character was an early model for stevens the butler in remains of the day well i guess that'll be interesting if we go back and watch that after this that's about all i got all right hey megan well we're not at that part yet tell us (laughs) about the book Hey everybody, it's Megan, and definitely not a collection of bees in a suit pretending to be Megan. Why would you even think that? That's strange. But anyway, just pop it in here to say thanks to the supporters of this episode, and basically every episode, our wonderful, beautiful, wild and out patrons. I don't know why they're wild and out. I, I just assume, you know, that they're, they're having a good time. People wild out, right? That's, that's something that, that I should know as a person and not a bunch of bees, which I'm not. But yeah, no, our, our patrons are amazing and we love them and you can become one by going to patreon.com slash class. like our newest patrons, Rose at catfish underscore cafe, Rachel, and Q. I, I just read what they give me. It's just K-Y-U-U, and maybe it's Caillou. I don't know, but uh, it's just really fun going, Kew! So thank you, guys. Uh, this episode isn't really pod pals, per se, but it is to let you all know about the third annual live stream for The Cure, an awesome online podcasting event happening from May 17th to May 19th, run by the Epic Film Guys podcast. And it's amazing. It is 40 hours of content from podcasters all over the the indie podcast scene meant to raise money for cancer research. And all proceeds go to the Cancer Research Institute. And it's just like this really great, amazing thing that these guys do. And I'll have a link in the show notes, but you can go to livestreamforthecure.com to donate and get more information at livestream number four cure on Twitter. And, you know, I'll, so I'm about to play you a promo where they talk about it. Uh, you could hear me along with my co-hosts, Derek and Charles, on our podcast, Rolling Misadventures, on May 19th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be doing a fiasco game and just kind of showcasing some of the goofy stuff that we do. Uh, I hope you guys tune in and, you know, maybe donate and stuff. It's going to be wild. Derek, Charles, and I have never done a live recording of Rolling Misadventures, so it's gonna be something. So again, the the whole event is going on from the 17th to the 19th, which, you know, 
as of this going up is tomorrow to Sunday. But you get, you get what I'm saying. But yeah, we will be on Sunday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. I'm Nick. And I'm Justin. And we can't believe it's already time for the 2019 live stream for The Cure. Thanks to our amazing peers, listeners, and supporters. Last year, we crushed our goal of $5,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. The Cancer Research Institute is funding research into immunotherapy to create a future immune to all forms of cancer. Every single cent we raise goes to them. And they're also rated over 92% on CharityNavigator.org. This year, we're aiming our sights even higher with our most ambitious event to date. Join us May 17th through the 19th on twitch.tv slash epicfilmguys for 40 hours of live content from us and other amazing shows who will join us to try to reach $7,500. Please visit www.livestreamforthecure for more information or to find out how you can be a part of the event. Together, we can make a difference. Okay, so without uh, further ado, the remains of the day, as it, you know, remains. So, uh, like or not I, as a days? Not as a days, no. As I kind of mentioned before, the outer framing of the story is our main character, a butler maimed. A, 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 a butler maimed. Just a maimed butler. Emotionally maimed. The butler is named Mr. Stevens, and no, you will not get to know his first name, as that's horribly improprietous. And he's driving through the English countryside for reasons I'll get to in a second. The novel is narrated in the first person in whatever way you could call Stevens a person. Which is unfair, I guess. It's not like Heart of Darkness where Marlowe is essentially a cardboard cutout that things just happen to. Stevens has a personality. It's just that this personality and by extension narrative style is deliberate, detail-oriented, yet restrained, and in no rush. He's also super discursive. Which is a word that means that, you know, he can't stay on topic, that he keeps digressing to just sort of random butler things. And, and how annoying is it when someone keeps wandering away from the topic to a random digression? Like, you know, if someone was doing a literature podcast and they kept deviating from the book, let's talk about finance or how old horses get or Rule 34 internet porn or Billy Jack or Batman or that time Mick got shoved to death by Mr. T in Rocky Three. I bet that would be unlistenable. And here's the thing. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Kira Knightley obviously is the better choice. <laughs> Why do you say obviously? Like, that, Natalie Portman is a very good actress. She was, like, 14 years old in that movie. Like, judging any of them on, on their performances is, is a little harsh. Like, they were kids. She is an accomplished actress. Now? Yeah. So how she do wasn't know... very likable in that saga. Well, how do you know that Kira Knightley would have been any better? She was also a child. Uh, she hit her stride much earlier than Natalie Portman. You are literally just talking out your ass. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, wait, wait, wait. No, wait, no, wait. no, no. No, no, no. Back no. to Stevens. Stevens, not Natalie Portman or Karen Knightley. Now, isn't part of his discursiveness part of the character that he just can't ever tackle the issue that, like, is on the page? Well, yeah. It's it's a means of distracting himself. I'm gonna get to that. I'm gonna get to that. All right. But for the time being, this is Stevens's world. We're just living in it. And as far as Stevens is concerned, this is his boss's world. And every fiber of his being is dedicated to ensuring that everything in his boss's world is 110% perfect always, all the time, or else he has failed utterly as a butler and, I don't know, go flagellate himself or something. 
Currently, in this outer framing year of 1956, Stevens's boss is a wealthy American man named Mr. Faraday, who bought the house, which is called Darlington Hall, about a year ago, when it was sold after the death of Lord Darlington. Stevens has a hard time getting a beat on Faraday, because he does weird American shit, like make jokes and outwardly display his feelings, and talk to Stevens like he's a person. And then one day, Faraday tells him, Hey, I gotta go back to America for a few weeks. Why don't you, like, borrow the car and have a nice vacation? Hey, yo, chap. I gotta go back to America. Got some stuff to do. Y'all want to take my horseless carriage around? That's all right. You do that, Stevens. I like the cut of your jib. <laughs> How does an American person do an American accent? This is so fucking bad. <laughs> right, well, this is 1956. Ah, of course. It was different back then. Oh, Stevens is fucking befuddled by this. Like, Faraday may as well have told Stevens he could take a shit on his lap. The idea is so wild to him. But then he gets a letter from a Miss Kenton, who was once the housekeeper of Darlington Hall. Just, you know, saying hi, talking about her marriage uh, that Stevens seems to intuit is unhappy, and her nostalgia for her days working at Darlington Hall. Now, for Stevens, it may be varied so very, 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 very deeply that he doesn't even consciously realize it. I mean, he kind of realizes it, but he loves Miss Kenton. He wants the puss. No, see, that's the thing. I, I even have it here that Mr. He wants the puss because he doesn't just want her in the wants to take the sex train to bone town kind of way. Because I'm not 100% sure Stevens has ever had sex ever, but we'll get there. But like the real capital T, true capital L love with Miss Kenton. And so he reads the letter and he thinks very practically about how Darlington Hall has a much smaller staff nowadays since Mr. Faraday is, is not a lord entertaining people and whatever, but that it's led Stevens to having to struggle to like keep up with everything to his absurdly high standards. These are Stevens's standards, BT dubs, not Faraday's. Like dude could probably give a damn. And so he's like, hey, maybe I should write Miss Kenton a letter back, see if she wants to come back to work here, since we could really use a housekeeper, and defo not, because I've carried a deep longing in my soul for her for the last 20 years. Yep, Stevens, old boy, you're so practical and not a repressed idiot. So British. So British. And so Stevens decides to take Faraday up on his go-on-a-road-trip offer, if only to go find Miss Kenton and try to convince her to come back. He tells Faraday this, and he's like, Hell yeah, man! Going on vacay to chase after a hot lady up top! That's your broken hand. That is my broken hand. Put your arm down. That's a bad idea. Well, Steve Stevens doesn't high-five him back. Um, <laughs> Stevens folds in on himself like wet origami, and Faraday's like, Come on, man, I'm just I'm just joshing you. We cool. I'll even pay your gas money. And Stevens has this honestly, like, really funny moment where he talks about how he just doesn't know how to deal with Faraday's banter. Like, that's how he calls it, just banter. Because wacky back-and-forth repartee between master and butler is just... <laughs> impropriety. But Stevens reminds himself that if he's going to be a good butler which is his sole purpose in life, then he clearly must learn the art of banter or else disappoint Faraday. So here's the thing. I don't remember from the book, and I don't think they really cover it in the movie. I know he wants to be like his dad. Mm -hmm. Do butlers aspire to be like a particular butler? He does mention, yeah, um, I left off names because... We only have so much time. So there is a but, Hall of but, Fame of butlers? Yes. During Stevens's many, many, many reminiscings of butlering in general, he does think back to, like, famous great butlers of yore. Mm. I just uh, left that out because it's really boring. <laughs> Nowadays, I think the only butler we all think of is Alfred. Yeah. 
Alfred's up there. Um, I think of the butler from Clue. Well, because he's the great line where they're like, oh, but he's you're, not the, the butler. you're the butler. What do you do? And he goes, why, sir, I buttle. <laughs> but he's not the butler. Isn't that the twist? It depends on which version of the movie you watch. He's not the butler. He's Mr. There's whatever. There's three different endings. Yeah, he's yeah. Mr. Clue. Um, he's, he's Mr. Clue! <laughs> uh, <laughs> I knew it all along. Yeah, I guess when you think of butlers, you pretty much just think of fictional butlers, like Alfred. Yeah. Because who, well, who the fuck else has a butler in America but Bruce Wayne? <laughs> oh, oh, but also, there's a butler in, uh, in The Nanny. Fran Drescher, they got a butler. Oh, and uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, yeah! Jeffrey! Jeffrey! There you go! But, yeah, no, we'll be damned if we could name a, a real-for-real butler. But anyway, I'm, I'm not I'm not gonna lie, like, I kind of love this thing where he's like, I must learn banter! Like, it's so fucking ridiculous. And, and that's the thing, like, Stevens is, in his weirdly neurotic, obsessively servile, tightly-buttoned way, kind of really likable. He, he has the emotional acuity of a bag of rocks, but it's partly because of the way that he was raised. Namely by a butler, who's just as insane as he is. But we'll get there. So that's the prologue. Now the novel proper begins with Stevens making his trip, spending the first night of it in Salisbury. Which is just fun to say. Home of the Salisbury. steak. Salisbury, yep. He does do some fun sightseeing. But that night, in his room at an inn, he reflects on butler things. Because even when he's technically on vacation, he can't think about anything else. And that's where he does that thing where he thinks about, like, the best butlers. Whose names I did not write down. We learn uh, about Mr. Stevens Sr. and how Stevens thinks his dad was potentially the best butler ever to buttle. Again, I keep saying, we'll get there. Anyway, the next day, Stevens is rereading Miss Kenton's letter and having to remind himself that, oh right, she's actually Mrs. Ben. Although maybe she left her husband? Or maybe he's just reading into it and now he's just all a dither, poor Stevens. He thinks back to when he first hired Miss Kenton. Also, nonetheless, he keeps referring to her as Miss Kenton. Hmm, Stevens. And that it was around the same time that they also took on Stevens Sr. to be the under-butler, which is apparently a thing. Look, I never watched, like, fucking Downton Abbey. I don't know this shit. It's like an assistant butler. The under-butler. He butles the under-side. I don't know. It's kind of weird to, you know, be his dad's boss, but, of course, the two men are way too professional to comment on it. Also, his dad is in his mid-70s, by the way, and also has arthritis, and so probably shouldn't be doing any heavy butlering, but he ain't gonna let life keep him down, no siree. Foreshadow. Anywho, at first, Stevens and Miss Kenton did not get along at all, because she had normal human feelings and also called his dad by his first name, on the extremely logical grounds that having to refer to two Mr. Stevenses is, is confusing. But Stevens is like, no, calling my dad William strips him of his dignity. And Miss Kenton's like, uh, no, the way your dad wobbles around the house fucking up chores because he's obscenely old is stripping him of his dignity. Call him Billy. Well, old Billy Stevens then takes a tumble while trying to serve tea to Lord Darlington and his guests, and Stevens has to admit that, yeah, that's not super great. And Lord Darlington is like, your ailing father is embarrassing. Hide him away somewhere, please. And Stevens gives his dad less duties, even though it makes his dad extremely upset, because he's like, no, I am a butler, I must buttle. Uh, Stevens is reminiscing, then starts to focus in on Lord Darlington himself and the events that were going on around the time Stevens' dad was starting to have his troubles. It was 1923, and Darlington 
uh, was working on holding an international conference at his house with the goal of potentially rewriting the Treaty of Versailles. Because it seems to him like it was poor form for the British to treat the defeated Germany in such a way that wrecked their economy, the poor old Japs. I mean, it, it did completely fuck their economy. But Darlington has good intentions, but he's real dumb and he's going to make some very bad decisions. Anyway, Darlington is not actually a government official and neither are pretty much any of the people he invites. But they are all rich as fuck, and like lords and earls and countesses and shit, so I guess that's the thing. And then we get this absolutely bizarre fucking bit where Darlington pulls Stevens away from what I would imagine is a pretty big fucking undertaking that's keeping him, you know, real busy. Because Darlington absolutely needs him to fulfill the extremely critical task of giving his 23-year-old nephew, Sir Reginald Cardinal, who is engaged to be married, the sex talk. Aw, Reggie. (laughs) Reggie needs some help. I fucking swear to God. The British aristocracy, man. Like, I don't even know. But yeah, he's all like, Hey, Stevens, you strike me as a man who knows his way around a vagina, despite literally all evidence to the contrary. See, this should have been his dad, because we know his dad. (laughs) Had to have had sex. At least once. At least once. So, you know, stop the actual important things you're doing, and go tell this grown-ass man who's engaged in the 1920s, so probably has most assuredly had sex already, how putting the P in the V works. Because I simply cannot be bothered. (laughs) And Stevens... Ever the devoted butler gives it a try and fails miserably twice. He's like, hey, you know how there are flowers and geese? And thank God a French diplomat named DuPont shows up and needs assistance rescuing Stevens from this weird ass shit. And again, it's just legit hilarious in that like uptight, overly formal, repressed British way. And I love it. But it's not all wine, roses, and sex talk. This DuPont dude has, like, some fucked up feet that he keeps making Stevens take care of, in the middle of which he is alerted that his father has had a stroke. They call a doctor, but Stevens is so busy helping all the rich assholes, he barely has time to actually see his dad himself. In fact, he gets only, like, one short chat with him before having to help serve all the guests at the final dinner, where apparently the only actual politician there, an American senator named Mr. Lewis, denounces the other guests as naive dilettantes who don't know how to do a politics. To which Lord Darlington replies to not be such a dickhead, as it is undignified and dishonorable. Which everyone else is very pleased by. (laughs) Including Stevens, who's just so pleased. Even though Miss Kenton has just gently broken the news to him that his father has died. His master really kicked ass that speech, though. And Stevens was there to help make the whole event run smoothly. So he's so pleased. This is a great night. It's an awesome night. He's definitely not horribly sad he wasn't by his father's side when he died. Never mind that Lord Darlington asks Stevens later if anything's wrong, because it would appear as though he's currently on the verge of tears. Stevens just tells him that it's been a long, hard day. Even present-day road trip Stevens is like, yes, I handled that well, and with dignity. Yeah, don't the emotions get in the way. And if you haven't figured it out yet, this is where it's made extremely clear that Stevens is an unreliable narrator, because even in recounting the story, he makes no mention of grief or, or how horrible like he must have felt trying to hold it all together. If it weren't for the mention of other characters noticing him crying, we the reader would have no way of knowing, you know, just from Stevens' narration, that he was particularly bothered. 
bothered by the death of his father. That he, you know, he obfuscates and he hides things in details and stuff like that. And it's great, you know, writing because it makes you have to actually, like, pay attention. Although it's kind of a double-edged sword because, as I mentioned before, Stevens can be really fucking boring sometimes. But this all just goes to show that Miss Kenton has her shit together. She's the one who noticed Steven Sr. was slipping up at tasks before he had his first fall. She's the one who doesn't have all of Stevens' weird dignity hang-ups and blind spots and shit. And she's also the one who stays with Stevens' dad as he dies so that Stevens can continue butlering. And though he does realize at this point how much he has already come to depend on her, he is far too fucking Britishly obtuse to realize that he's also falling in love with her. So he doesn't know how the tulips and the geese work. No, he does not. The irony. <laughs> the irony. Back in the present day, Stevens is driving along when his car overheats and breaks down. Luckily, he's right by a big house where a guy comes out and is able to help get the car going again. They chat a bit and Steven talks about being a butler and the guy's like, cool, where do you buttle at? And Steven tells him Darlington Hall and the guy's like, ooh, fancy, but wait, wasn't that guy a Nazi sympathizer? And Stevens is like... Uh, you know, I, no idea. I wouldn't know. Never worked for the guy. My, my boss is a dude named Mr. Faraday, who has absolutely no ties to Nazism whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, no American Nazis. Nope, that wasn't a thing. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that just crazy to think about? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Stevens admits to the reader that this isn't the first time he's lied about working for Lord Darlington. He's also denied it to some visiting friends of Mr. Faraday's as well. Although he says it has nothing to do with being ashamed of Lord Darlington, a man who, as far as Stevens is concerned, is only the most upright of moral characters. He just lies because with all the misinformation surrounding Darlington, it avoids any potential awkwardness. You know how it is. You bring up Nazism, it just kills the mood. No one sees you just nodding. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sure, Stevens, I, I totally buy that. That night, Stevens stays at a country inn where everyone in the dining area is making jokes and having a good time. And Stevens, who says that he has specifically been listening to comedy shows on the radio to build up some bantering skills, tries to make a joke. Hey, who's on first? <laughs> he does not succeed, and in fact literally sucks all the joy out of the room. Hey, I'm told the man named who is on first. <laughs> Basically. Ha 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 ha. Poor Stevens. He's, he's trying his best, you guys. He tries to cheer himself up by remembering when many famous and important people came to visit Lord Darlington and commented on how lovely and polished the silver was. There's really not much call for polishing silver these days, but Stevens can look back on all those important events that took place in Darlington Hall and feel like he was a part of them. Because goddammit, he polished the fuck out of that silver. Stevens, my guy, my buddy, my dude, this might have something to do with why you have such a hard time relating to other people like a human person and not Robo Butler 3000. I should have been polishing <laughs> your flute instead, if you know what I mean. Ah. That's a spicy meatball. <laughs> I really thought you were going to go for a jazz thing there, like, like the jazz flute, but no. <laughs> yeah. Should have been playing with his tromboner. I think you should start listening to some comedy shows and work on building up those banter skills. Hey. <laughs> oh, uh, onward and upward. By which I mean, let's talk more about Laura Darlington's further descent into Nazi filleting. And, like, here's the thing. While we are admittedly getting Steven's version of things, which, 
is not necessarily the accurate version. It seems like Darlington is meant to be, like, shown as mostly dabbling in fascism because he's too stupid to know any better. Like, he really was the naive idiot Mr. Lewis had accused him of being and is being used by these up-and-coming Nazis looking to gain a foothold in the British aristocracy. He remembers this one time that Darlington fired two perfectly good maids simply because they were Jewish, and he decided to give anti-Semitism a try, because other British fascists were peer pressuring him that, you know, all the cool kids were doing it. Side note, I feel like people really don't talk about the abundance of fascist and Nazi sympathizing among the British upper class leading up to World War II. No, it's a thing. I mean, I know it's a thing. I don't know, maybe it was like my American public school education, which is a cause for a lot of shit that I don't know. But, like, if there's one thing our history classes love talking about, it was World War II. And they never mentioned that part of it. Instead, I just gotta watch Schindler's List on three separate occasions. Which is awesome when you're 14 and other kids are making jokes about putting Jewish people in ovens. And this is why you don't tell people you're Jewish and then you feel weirdly guilty about it. And I'm getting off track. Yeah. Fun time. Well, because I think the reason they don't teach it is there was a good amount of people who didn't think the fascists were, you know, that bad because they didn't know what the fascists were necessarily doing. And that is one thing that Stevens returns to where he says, yeah, it's like super easy for everyone to look back and be critical of like Lord Darlington and others and be like, you were hanging out with Nazis, you dumb fucks. But that at the time that, yeah, they didn't know about, you know, the murdering millions of people. <sighs> I mean, didn't a lot of companies make stuff for the Nazis? Yep. <laughs> A lot of countries and people and things were complicit. Yay. But we were on the good side. Oh, yeah. We were totally on the good side. We did I, did really, I mention? We, we didn't do anything. I didn't that. dig into it too much, but uh, I don't know if y'all caught earlier. Old Here Ishiguro was born in Nagasaki. Yep. We've never done anything that, that might have, you know, been bad about that. Yeah. Nope. But anyway... These maids, they're Jewish, they gotta go. Stevens, though, he doesn't want to fire the maids. They're great maids. He thinks this is a weird, stupid decision, but you can't question the boss. So he tells Miss Kenton that, as the housekeeper, she has to fire them, and she is pissed at the unfairness of the whole situation and threatens to leave as well if they fire the maids. But Stevens is like, you know, hey, man, rules are rules. It is what it is. Ultimately, Miss Kenton stays anyway because she has nowhere else to go and is scared of not being able to find other work. A year or so later, Darlington is like, yeah, that was a shitty move. I don't feel great about it in retrospect. I don't think anti-Semitism is really my thing after all. <laughs> Stevens, can you try to track down those maids? <laughs> yeah, you gotta try something sometime to try it out, see how it is. Yeah, you know, I, I gave it, I give it the old college try. Christ, um. <laughs> I mean, oh, all of Britain had issues with all of Britain gave anti-Semitism the old college oh, we, we, try. We've talked about this before. This is weird, it's sad. Yes. But Stephen goes to Miss Kenton to tell her the news because, as he says, he knows that, you know, at the time she was as upset about the whole thing as he was. And Miss Kenton is like, uh, what? When the fuck were you upset about it? I, I don't remember that. And she gets angry with him for never showing what he's actually feeling. Hmm. What? What are we making noises? We're making noises about the fact that Stevens the, does that John Mulaney bit where he says, I'm going to take all of my emotions, I'm going to keep them right here, and then one day I'll die. Yeah. <laughs> well, they replace the maids with a girl named Lisa, who in the end just ends up running off with one of the footmen to go get married. And Stevens and Miss Kenton watch it all happen like, hmm, yes, what a bad decision she is making. 
There's no guarantee that love will last, but you can keep a good job like this for life. Yes siree, romance sure is dumb. And then they both burst into flame from unexpressed sexual tension. <laughs> it gets even more so when Miss Kenton finds him not butlering for once, but reading a book, and he won't let her see what it is, and she's like, oh, is it a sexy book? Is it Fifty Shades of Grey? And he's like, no, go away! And she grabs it from him and is disappointed that it's not Fifty Shades of Grey. It's just a sappy romance novel, which honestly is still a pretty big bombshell for Stevens, I would say. And he's just like, well, whatever. I read it for the aesthetic language. Leave me alone when I'm not working. Gosh, it sure is hot in here all of a sudden. Ah, I hate you. After this, their relationship, and at this point, like 10 plus year friendship, becomes strained. And present day Stevens is still like, man, you know, I, I don't know why it started happening after that. Hmm. It's a mystery. It's the mystery of the dance. Miss Kenton, in the meantime, starts making use of her vacation days and seeing another butler. A gentleman caller. Romantically. <sighs> Stevens handles this super well. Like when she's too tired for one of their nightly meetings over Coco, he goes, Oh yeah, no, I don't want these to, you know, be a bother to you or anything. So let's just stop doing them ever again, forever. I'm an adult. Also, then Miss Kenton's aunt dies, and that was her only living relative. And after she tells Stevens of the news, she asks for a few moments alone and goes to her room. And Stevens is like, oh no, I didn't offer my condolences. Like, that's so rude of me. I need to go fix this. And he goes to her room, and he hears her crying through the door. So he throws open the door, and he scoops her into his arms, where he gently holds her and lets her know that she's not alone in her grief. Or at least he does that in my The Remains of the Day fanfiction that I am currently writing. <laughs> no, so he didn't do it. No, he didn't do it. What he actually does is go, oh, you know, I don't want to be a bother and intrude on her grief. I'll leave her alone. And also never mention it again because I don't want to embarrass her because that's for sure how people work. Ah! And there's this section in the, the present day road trip where people Stevens is staying with mistakenly think he's some kind of important dignitary because he's met all these important people while working for Darlington. And he remembers one time one of these important guests made fun of him for not knowing, like, politics or finance, like fucking rich asshole people do for funsies. And, yeah, I don't even care. Can he just get to Miss Kent and confess his fucking love for her already? Like, my God. We just, we just got this thing where we're just rich fucks are just like, Oh, Stevens, butler man, will you tell me what you think of this situation in, like, the, the Far East? And Stevens is like, I don't know why you're doing this to me. And they're like, oh, you're so dumb. Oh, Stevens didn't know how to solve the crisis in the Suez Canal. What a dummy. <laughs> Fucking assholes. Hey, Megan, what do you make of the tariffs we have on China? Hurting the economy? There we go. Okay. <laughs> what a take. Oh, yeah. Look at me go. Hey, Meg. Please don't do this to me. What do you make of the Giants drafting Daniel Jones with the sixth overall pick in the NFL sports ball draft? I don't have to see it like I, I even care about giving a shit about knowing that. <laughs> wow. But but uh, he, can't, he can't meet up with Miss Kitten yet. First, Stevens has to remember how everything went totally to shit. He does this while waiting at a fancy hotel dining hall for Miss Kenton to meet up with him. He recalls a night a few months after the dead aunt incident in which Sir Cardinal, the nephew he attempted to give the talk to so many years ago, is now an international journalist. He just happens to show up unannounced. Stevens asks Miss Kenton to prepare a room for him, and she tells him that she can't because this was one of her nights off and she was about to go out. With a guy. A guy that she might 
Mary, but she's still thinking about it, though, you know? Just uh, just throwing that out there. And she throws that out, lets it sit there, and Stevens is like, okay, cool, have fun, presumably while clenching his sphincter so hard that it collapses. Things at Darlington Hall are tense that night. Darlington doesn't want his nephew there because he has very important meetings. And if you're wondering if these meetings are with Nazis, the answer is yes. And actually, Sir Cardinal knew that, and that's why he came. Because he understands that his uncle is a dipshit, being used by German fascists. But Stevens still needs to attend to them. And then, Miss Kenton comes back and is like, Hey, so I've decided. I'm getting married, and I'm leaving forever. And Stevens is like, Yeah, Mazel tov, I got stuff to do upstairs. And you just want to shake him, the fucking moron. God. Send me an invite, and I'll send a very nicely worded rejection to your invite. Yep, but it'll be really polite. And uh, yeah, she's basically like, all all these years, and that's all you fucking got. And he's like, yep, deuces. And then she cries in her room again, and Stevens almost knocks on her door, but then he doesn't. I'm dying. I'm dying, and this is killing me. Kazuo Ishiguro is killing me. From there, we return to present-day Stevens, but the meeting with Miss Kenton has already happened. He's sitting out on a pier at dusk as he recalls them talking about how, like, when they met up, that Sir Cardinal died in the war, and how Darlington tried to sue the newspapers for libel for calling him a no-good, bootlicking Nazi fuckboy. Stevens thinks that after 20 years, she still looks beautiful, but also very sad. And Miss Kitten admits that she has gotten back together with her husband, and cannot take the position at Darlington Hall. But she says that Stevens should come visit again, and meet her daughter, and we all know that that is not going to happen. Finally, he offers to drive her to the bus station, and asks if she's happy, or if her husband is mistreating her because she sounds so sad in her letters, and that's kind of a big step for our boy. It only took him 20 years to get there. It's a bold strategy, Stevens. Let's see how it works out for you. Miss Kenton says her husband never mistreated her, but that she didn't really grow to love him until after the war, when they had a kid. She also says that she often wonders if she made the wrong decision leaving her life, specifically her life with Stevens, behind. And it finally fucking happens, folks. It took like 30 goddamn years, but the light bulb goes off. And Stevens admits to himself that he loves the fucking hell out of this woman. Mrs. Kenton, I'm not feeling so good. <laughs> I don't understand. And he turns to dust. Yeah. yeah his emotions overtake him. He ah, snap. And he just... <laughs> but he has to let her go. She has a whole other life now. And he says that she shouldn't dwell on the past or what she should have done, and that she should instead enjoy her life with her family and the many years of that she has ahead of her. And she cries a little, and she leaves on the bus, leaving Stevens alone on the pier, watching strings of colorful lights turn on in the dark. And a man sits next to him, and they start chatting, and the man reveals that he also used to be a butler. And they, they, they do some butler talk. And he's impressed that Stevens worked for Lord Darlington, but instead of being pleased... Stevens breaks down and starts crying, and he says that he's scared that he's wasted his life and that he doesn't have any dignity at all, really, because he never made any mistakes or decisions of his own, that Lord Darlington at least got to make his own mistakes, but Stevens never did. The other man consoles him and, and basically gives him the same advice that Stevens just gave Miss Kenton. Don't waste time looking back and being miserable. Live for what you've got going on now. He points out the lights and how everyone here likes watching them in the evening time, that it's like their favorite time of day. And Stevens agrees that the man is right, and that he will try to make the most of what remains of his day. Ah. And resolves to get the hang of bantering. 
so we can finally have a decent conversation with Mr. Faraday. The end. Well, a timeout. So did he ever get to teach the kid about the birds and the flowers and the keys? No, he died in the war. Oh. oh my God. Stevens, my fucking heart. And that's the remains of the day. It's really sad and frustrating, but also funny and does at least end on like a bittersweet kind of semi-hopeful note. Unlike the fucking movie, but we'll get there. And in that same vein, let's uh, talk about adaptations. Adaptations. I like the jazz song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what the fuck was that <laughs> jazz song oh, yep the famous jazz song so before we get to the biggie uh the remains of the day was adapted into a stage musical fairly recently back in 2010 and i know i freak out on the reg about how on earth some of these novels can possibly be turned into musicals but man this one especially so like, can you even picture Stevens, a man so deeply repressed he's practically imploding violently inwards like a stiff upper-lipped British black hole breaking into song? Should I knock? Should I go in? No, I'll just stand here and listen to her. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's exactly how it goes. Like, does Lord Darlington sing a song about how really Nazis aren't so bad and everyone just needs to chill out? Oh, Nazis <laughs> in the springtime. Oh, yeah, or, well, no, what's it? Springtime for Hitler. Springtime for, for Hitler. Hitler and Germany. I have questions. And yes, I looked on YouTube and I couldn't find anything and I'm very upset. Now, the novel was also released as an audio drama on BBC Radio in 2003, wherein Stevens was played rather appropriately, given the course of the, how this episode has gone, by Ian McDermott. Better known as your friend Palpatine. Or your pal friend Patine. Oh, that's a good quote. I know you're struggling. Absolute power. Okay. Yeah. I mean, unless he narrated the whole thing in character as the Emperor, though, like, like what's, what's even the point? This is true. <laughs> Have you ever heard the tale of Darth Stevens? <laughs> a man who had no outward emotions. <laughs> All right. Now we'll talk about the feature film. Released in 1994 and starring Anthony Hopkins as Stevens and Emma Thompson. <laughs> yes. And Emma Thompson as Miss Kenton. And like, that's some good, good casting right there for sure. The character of Faraday is combined with Senator Lewis for like a good extra layer of irony when he eventually buys Lord Darlington's house and is played by Christopher Reeve. Sir Cardinal is played by Hugh Grant and Lord Darlington is played by James Fox, who I don't know from anything, but is apparently a big deal. So yeah. First, the obvious. It was nominated for eight goddamn Academy Awards. Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Art Direction, Best Costumes, Best Director, Best Score, Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay. Like, damn, dude. And it lost every single one. In the movie's defense, it was a stacked year. And most of the losses were to either Schindler's List or Philadelphia. What are you gonna do? What you gonna do? You got Spielberg. <laughs> you got Spielberg, or son. Or Hanks. Depending. <laughs> So here's the thing about the movie. It's very beautiful. It's very well acted. And it is a vicious exercise in blue balls. So like I said, I, I watched this before I, I read the book and I had no idea what I was going to get into. And, and just like, so, you know, the whole time I was reading it, I'm just thinking of the differences. And there was a, a bit of trivia that I had read where originally John Cleese was interested in being Stevens. But then when he, like, saw the script and he's like, oh, they took out, like, all the, the humor and stuff. Like, I have no interest in this. And after seeing the movie, I'm like, 
how the fuck would that have worked? Because it is very serious and it is very British and everyone is full of very quiet British longing. But now that I've read the book, it's like, yeah, there's some funny shit in there. Like, I could see John Cleese's Stevens, like, fumbling around the, the countryside trying to tell a joke in a hotel and nobody gets it. I'd watch it. So, I have a curse in my life yeah. that I'm going to inflict everyone else with now. Whenever I think of John Cleese, the only thing that comes to mind, like, the image that crosses my synapses. Oh, God. Is him naked in uh, Fish Called Wanda. <laughs> I don't know. And he's dancing around the house singing in Italian. Yep. Now, now it's in my synapses. Yeah, now you all got to think of John Cleese mother naked. Unless you haven't seen A Fish Called Wanda, in which case you should. It's a very good movie. It also has Jamie Lee... Asshole! <laughs> it has Jamie Lee Curtis and Kevin Klein and... Uh, one of the other pythons. What's which? I don't know the guy's name. I think Eric Idle. I could be wrong though. But yeah, Kevin Klein's really fucking funny, and it. Jamie Lee Curtis is very sexy, and John Cleese is nude. <laughs> yeah. The greatest Stevens was just nude. Which is not to say there are no bits of humor in the movie. Anthony Hopkins attempting to give the sex talk to grown man Hugh Grant is objectively hilarious. It's so good. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> so good but it's it's mostly it is it's very serious you know we, we don't have the benefit of stevens's you know inner monologue and narrative so we just see these things happening on the outside and so it, it's really just more an exercise and absolute frustration because they have really good chemistry and you can see you can see it in their eyes and then just then it's like you just want to slam them together and just be like now kiss acting but yeah, here's the thing. They fucked up the ending. They fucked up the ending so hard. My God. They completely cut the end conversation that Stevens has with the butler. And and, and honestly, the he doesn't even really have the cathartic conversation with Miss Kenton either. Well, they kind of do because they do sit in the park together and talk about the lights and how it's the best part of the day. It's just it's the two of them that have that conversation. Yeah, but it's like a, it's not it's this little line of just like, oh, yeah, everybody always applauds when these lights come on. <laughs> and she kind of sort of verbally gives them kind of like one more chance before she gets on the bus, as opposed to the two of them sort of having this moment of like, we know you have to get on the bus. Like, it's this is just how it's going to happen. In the movie, I feel like it's more like she's like, I could not get on this bus, man. Anytime now. And he just sort of lets her. But and then, then he's he just there. Yeah, he's just there alone. And he has, he has tears. He has emotions. And then the movie fucking ends. Blue balls. Just, just the worst. And so I'm sitting there thinking about what a, a monster Ishiguro is for denying the viewer any kind of fucking catharsis. But he did. And it's director James Ivory. Who's the real fucking monster? What a jerk! Coming for it, Jimmy. Yeah, I don't know if you're still alive. I uh, not. It's gonna be way easier to find him and get him. Uh, oh yeah, no, he's still alive and kicking. Oh, he wrote "Call Me by Your Name." Another movie about blue balls. No, they definitely fuck in that one. But then they don't. <laughs> and then they leave. And one of them is an underage child. So that's where it is with adaptations in terms of uh, remains of the day. It was weird watching the movie and comparing it with the book because the movie is still very good, but the book is much more emotionally satisfying, which isn't saying much because the book is still not very emotionally satisfying because of how fucking dense 
Stevens is. And, I mean, you know, if you watch the movie, you get the very good acting also. And you don't have to deal with how sometimes Stevens is really, really boring as a narrator. So, you know, give and take, pros and cons. Got three words for you. Mono. No aware. <laughs> or if you'd prefer, YOLO! Alright, it's it's that time of the, uh, the the show where we do that thing that we do every episode of the show. And that's where Sing. I... Sing? Yes. What, what we I s- put my dick in the box. That's not a song. Well, I mean, it's a song, but what you just did was not sing. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. But let's never fuck. Not once. Now we do that other thing in the show that we always do where I go, hey, RJ. What's up? You up? You up? The remains of the day. What's up? Good or bad? Great. Explain. <clears throat> I don't know. I like it. You are both a lawyer and a teacher, and the best you could do was... <laughs> I just like it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you feel for this guy. You're rooting for him. You feel bad for him. You hate him. You feel so many emotions for this box of rocks. He's like Eeyore in that way. I mean, it's basically watching Eeyore for, if you're you're watching, for about two and a half hours. Or if you're reading for about 300 pages. And you're just like, oh, poor, poor Eeyore. But he's not like Eeyore. Eeyore has emotions. They're just sad. Like, Eeyore's just a little rain cloud. Stevens isn't isn't like a, oh, thanks for noticing. Well, we know he has emotions. He just hides his emotions. He doesn't want to recognize his emotions, but we know he has emotions. Yeah, but Eeyore doesn't... Eeyore is very outwardly expressive of his emotions. They're just negative emotions. Well, this guy's so negative, he doesn't even allow himself to have emotions. Or think his emotions are worth sharing. Yeah. That's rough. Like, that's a whole thing where, you know, with the whole scene with his dad, where it's like, he doesn't even want to burden, you know, I don't even want to burden the reader with having to deal with my terrible grief, so I'm just not gonna, you know, I'm just gonna pretend like it never happened. I'm Stevens. And that's the other thing also, right, that we know within the story, he's sitting down to write this, right? So we know he cares about it, because why else would you sit down to write about it? I don't sit down to write about things I don't care about. So, I mean, we know he has the emotion, he just can't even bring himself to acknowledge them or think that it's worthwhile for us to read it because he's just so sad <laughs> thanks for noticing my story yeah. Yeah. well because you know for his whole life he's been told that his worth is based on you know butlering well but see that's the thing did anyone tell him that or that's just what he decided i'm going to assume his dad a butler who was so dedicated he wanted to keep butlering after he had a fucking stroke. Well, two things about that. One, we know his dad like laid some pipe at least once, so his dad wasn't perfect, right? And we do know so the dad did need to keep butlering. I don't know if that's maybe... I don't know how these people get paid. Yeah, I don't know how... It's like maybe yeah. he got to work because he just needs a place. He wants yeah. to be near his kid. But we know his dad wasn't like perfect the way that this Mr. Stevens is because he dated, raised a kid. Yeah. We never get to see the wife or the mom. No, of course not. You know, so we know he wasn't quite as dedicated as this Mr. Stevens. I guess it's, you know, because at the end he says that he feels like he didn't get to make any of his own decisions. So he seems to feel that being, 
hashtag world's greatest butler was never an active choice on his part. It was just something like, I was born into this position and this is what I have to do. Well, because he's just so downtrodden. He just never took control. No. He had opportunities and it wasn't, no one said, in fact, you got this fucking American saying, hey man, go get that chick. (laughs) Like people telling him to go take control and he still didn't. Oh, Stevens. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. The cremations of the day. The cremains of the day. Yeah. Your take, good or bad? I mean, obviously very good, you know, because it it can promote this much, like, conversation, and it's just a really well-drawn character, and it says a lot that it can be really dense and boring, and yet I'm still so fucking emotionally invested in this fucking middle-aged butler man falling in love with this fucking housekeeper and that they won't fucking acknowledge it. So yeah, it's good. I can't wait any longer, Meg. Yeah? Natalie Portman. Oh, God. You're the bomb. I can't die not saying it. Natalie Portman, I also think you're the bomb. I just want to throw that out there. I I can't keep it locked inside anymore. And uh, that'll about do it for this episode of Ono Laclasse. If you... Of RJ with RJ by RJ. If you enjoy the show... RJ! Leave us leave us reviews. Leave, rate, rate our things. Tell everyone. Tell your family. Tell your friends. Tell your butler. When you're, when you're also encouraging your butler to go out and live his life and chase the woman he loves, tell him, you know, when you're on that drive, listen to Ono Laclasse on the way there. You'll learn how to banter. It'll be great. What do you think? Stevens was just really into kink and it was just such a bottom. We just didn't have that identity yet. Oh, he was just that much of like a, a sub. Yeah. And uh, something. What's the word? Oh yeah, sub. And he just couldn't find you the. You can't dom play dumb, maybe. I wasn't playing. Dumb. He just couldn't find the dom that he needed. No, I wasn't trying to play dumb. I, I just almost called him a beta on accident. <laughs> oh, he's a beta. Well, yeah, but I meant to. I was the word I was looking for was sub. But anyway. You can follow us on Twitter, you can like us on Facebook, you can join our Facebook group, you can pledge to us on Patreon, you could send things to our P.O. Box, and you can find the, the links to all of those things at onoliclass.com. Now, do you think the book or movie would have been better if he wore a Gimp mask? Without anyone asking him, they just started wearing a Gimp mask like halfway through, and he would just like <laughs> recollect to himself, <laughs> I wanted to be modest and appropriate, so I dressed as I felt. With a Gimp mask. With a mask that covered my face. I did not think I have earned the privilege to show it. Are you trying to do an Anthony Hopkins voice or is this just a voice? Because it's making me uncomfortable. (laughs) The next episode will be on May 30th. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. By RJ for RJ with RJ as as portrayed by RJ. I didn't say it. Or adapted for the screen by RJ. I didn't say it. We love you. Bye. Toodle. Hot take alert. Kira Knightley and Carrie Mulligan. Wow, that was such a hot take. You spit on your fucking fat. I, I dug deep for this hot take. Hot take alert. Kira, well, train. Hot, hot train alert. Coming in hot. Choo-choo. Choo-choo. I'm going to take a sip It's of toodle. Water. Toodle, no.